what I can tell everyone out there listening with adolescence and whether it's your child or your spouse or your loved one, there is always a way through. Welcome to A Way Through, brought to you by Archway Academy, where education meets recovery. Archway is a sober high school in the sunny heart of Houston, Texas. We meet the individual educational needs of teens recovering from substance use disorder with care, compassion, respect, and rigor. Archway is the largest recovery high school in the nation, and we are here to remind you that you may not be able to see it now, but something different is possible. This is A Way Through. Welcome to A Way Through. I am your host, Jamie Edwards, and I'm glad that you've joined us today. Our message on A Way Through is that you may not be able to see it now, but something different is possible. There is a way through teen substance use and mental and behavioral health issues. When you subscribe, like, or share our podcast, it helps others be able to hear our message. Students and worried families in the throes of teenage substance use will hear viable options for restoring their child's physical, mental, emotional, and academic health. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. You can also follow us on Instagram at Archway Academy and Facebook Archway Academy HTX. And we are super excited today. Joining us on today's show is Dr. James Flowers, owner and founder of the J. Flowers Institute, a concierge diagnostic evaluation service that is located here in Houston. Dr. Flowers is one of the most familiar and respected experts in the area of pain recovery, addiction, and chronic pain assessment. He is known both nationally and internationally and draws from decades of research and industry experience. Hi, Dr. Flowers, and welcome to Way Through. Thank you so much. And I am so honored to be here. And I just love what you just said about a way through. And there is a way through. And there is always a way through. And so thank you guys for doing this podcast and asking me to be a part of it today. Thank you. We are just honored to have you on and can't wait to hear about what all the Institute is doing and the work and hope that it's offering to families, both here in Houston and across the nation and really the world. Because I know that y'all have people come in from all around the world, which is amazing. Yeah, it really is. And I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. So before we get into that, I did want to ask you, would you be willing to tell us a little bit about yourself and what drew you to this type of work? Because it's not the type of work that just anybody would be drawn to. It's hard and it's difficult and it's painful. It, It is hard. It's difficult. It's painful. And it is my passion. And again, When you were reading just a few moments ago and talking about a way through, it reminded me immediately of my childhood and why I do what I do. And Mm -hmm. so I'll I'll, uh, talk about that if you don't mind. So I was raised uh, in deep South Texas in a very, very small town 
And my grandfather was a surgeon and he owned the hospital in which the town was in and he built the hospital, I guess I should say. And so I guess you could say my family and they were in the oil business. And so my family was a big fish in a small town. My mother met my father when they were 16 years old. My mother was a cheerleader in, at her high school and my father was a quarterback at his high school in a different town. And I'll tell you the towns that my mother lived in McAllen, Texas, and my father lived in Alice, Texas. So that's where I, uh, where I'm from. And so at homecoming, they played each other when my parents were 16 and at halftime, they met each other and fell in love. And two weeks later, they eloped and drove across the Mexican border and went to Reynosa, Mexico and got married. <laughs> Didn't tell anybody until they were married and they came home and said, guess what? We went and got married. And so my mother moves from McAllen, Texas to Alice, Texas, which is about a, at that time, it was about a two hour drive north in Texas. My mom literally lived on the Mexican border, near the Mexican border. And so she went to Alice and, and became a part of, part of my father's family. And it was a very, very dysfunctional family. And my father, uh, they finished high school together, married. My grandparents bought them a house across the street from their home. And they lived in their own little house when they were 16, 17 years old, finishing high school, which is dysfunctional in itself at times. My mother had been Miss, Tech, Miss South Texas. She was first runner up as Miss Texas. She was this beauty queen growing up and she was blonde hair and blue eyes and absolutely beautiful. And my father was the quarterback, as I said, of his football team. He really treated her as if she was a doll or a just a prize. He would look at my mother and say, you don't need to say a word, just shut up and let me do the talking and you just smile and look pretty. And so my mother became very anxious and, and she, my grandfather, my father's father was a physician and he just said, well, you know what, honey, take this Valium. You'll feel so much better. And so in the early, this was in the, gosh, this was in the late fifties. My grandfather started feeding my mother Valium to take her anxiety away. And boy, did that feel good, she said later in life. And so she began taking Valium to overcome her anxiety, being a new bride at 16 years old. My father began drinking to ease his anxiety, and they became full-blown drug addict alcoholics when they were in their late teens. And then when he graduated from high school, he immediately went to work for our family's oil and gas drilling company. It's a small company down in Allison. So he worked for that company and my mother didn't need to work. He said, so you just stay home and let's have children. So uh, my mother's first child, uh, she had twins and she miscarried at birth. And so she lost both twins right at nine months. My father was devastated and there were boys and my mother was devastated. And so she increased her drinking and increased her volume use. And my father increased his drinking. And about two years later, they had my oldest sister, Brenda. And then six years later, they had twin girls. And then about five years later, they had me. And my mother had always said, I want to, I would, I really want a boy. And so let's try again. And so they had, I was the youngest and I was the boy. And so she had had twins that died, my oldest sister, then twins again, and then me. 
they really throughout my throughout my early childhood my oldest sister was 10 years older than me i believe and then middle sister's five years older than me and my parents would drink and have parties and travel the world and go to mexico all the time and they had a house in mexico so when i was growing up we would go to mexico and they would take our their friends with them my dad had an airplane and we would fly down to mexico right across the border and we'd land and a car would pick us up and we'd go straight to the bar, right? We'd go to Sam's Club, which is this pretty famous old Mexican Reynosa bar and restaurant. And so my twin sisters and I would sit in a booth by ourselves and drink pink lemonade and eat peanuts all day while our parents were at the booth with their friends next to us, just getting as drunk as they could possibly get, right? And so that was my early childhood and we continued to, to grow up and their drinking continued and one day when my oldest sister was 16 the police brought her home and said listen we found uh brenda selling pot and you need to tell her to stop selling pot and so my father looks at her and says stop selling pot and she's like okay and they went about their day right didn't discuss it didn't talk about it and then a month later they came home and they said well this time we found her selling cocaine <laughs> and you need to tell her to stop selling cocaine Brenda, stop selling cocaine and stop using cocaine. Okay. And they went about their day and there was no consequences and no discussion about it. And so my oldest sister's drug use continued to grow in her uh, early teens. And then one day they came home, uh, uh, two police, the Texas Highway Patrolman actually came up to my father's house and said, well, this time we found 20 pounds of cocaine in her trunk, <laughs> 20 pounds of cocaine in her trunk. And so my father said, well, what are you going to do? And he was, they were like, well, we're going to seize it and take it. We've already taken it, but you need to tell her to stop <laughs> and didn't arrest her. Anybody else would have been given a life in prison. Right. And oh my gosh. So about a day or two later, a judge called my father and said, Hey, you really need to put her in treatment. You've, you've got to put her in treatment because she's continuing to use and there's, uh, we don't see any bite way of stopping this. So why don't you take her to Dallas? There's a great treatment center there. It's called Timberlawn Hospital and take her up there. And so my father said, okay, he puts her in the car that morning. I was 10 years old at this time. And he puts my sister in the car and he drives her to Dallas to Timberlawn Hospital, drops her off and then turns around and drives home. And that was about a 13, 14 hour day, probably of driving back and forth. My father was 40 years old. And he, at that time, owned car dealerships and was a workaholic, alcoholic. And so he comes home and he's in a horrible mood. We're sit, we sit down at our dinner table. I had a nanny, Eva, who was really my mother, my pseudo mother. She came in and put food on the table and we start eating. And my twin sisters are sitting over here where I am. And I was sitting across and my mom was at one end of the table and my dad's at the other end of the table. And my mother said, well, how was your day taking Brenda to treatment? And he says, well, it was a horrible day and I'm stressed out about it. And he has his scotch and my mother has her vodka and her cigarette at the end of the table. So we're eating my dad's face. I just remember is just red as could be. And all of a sudden he looked at me and he put his right hand over his chest and he fell over and died right in front of us. And my sisters looked and they looked at me and I looked at my sisters and I looked down at my father laying on the floor when my mother stood up and she swigged her vodka and she said, well, damn. 
And so Eva, who was our nanny, which was really, again, like my mother comes running in the room and uh, gives my father CPR and it's too late. He's dead. And so I go at 10 years old to the telephone and dial my grandfather's phone number. And I'm like, doctor, we called him Dr. Bill. And I said, Dr. Bill, daddy just fell over. We're at the dinner table and he's dead. And he said, what? And he go, I said, yeah, he just died. And he said, I'm calling an ambulance. They'll be there. So he called an ambulance. An ambulance came, took my father to the hospital. My grandfather was a surgeon, met them at the hospital, and it was his son. And he tried to revive him and tried to work on him for, I think he said, two hours. And, and it was just too late. He died. And so I grew up in what I call a circus of just complete dysfunction. My mother had never worked a day in her life. And she was absolutely devastated that her husband had died. My father had died and didn't know what to do. And the car dealerships that, that my dad had were taken away from my father or from my mother by General Motors because they had a contract that if the spouse wasn't actively involved, they reverted ownership to General Motors. And so she really was left with nothing, no business, no anything like that. We were pretty much at that time taken care of by my grandparents because it was, you know, my dad had died and didn't have an income anymore and they didn't save money. And so my mother's alcohol and drug use continued to escalate. My sister comes out of Timber One because my dad had died. So she says, I have to go to the funeral. So she comes home and goes to the funeral and starts using again. And so over the next, throughout my college career, undergraduate, I should say, throughout my undergraduate years, I really continued to watch my family. I should say really from the time I was born, but I can remember looking at my family and thinking as a child, I don't want to do this. I don't, I don't like the way these people behave. My mother and father had this tumultuous relationship. I think they had a passionate love for each other and a passionate hate for each other. My father cheated on my mother. I'm sure my mother cheated on my father. And they both used alcohol and had huge parties and lived this glamorous life and had an airplane. And it couldn't have been a worse situation. And But I literally remember as a child saying, I wish I could help them. I want to step in and help. So the good, I wasn't an adult at that time, but the good adult child of an alcoholic that I am was like, here, let me help. Let me help. And so when my father died, my mother did not know how to balance a checkbook. My mother didn't even have a checking account in her own name. She didn't know how to pay the electric bill. She didn't know how to pay the phone bill. She didn't know what to do. And so I stepped in as a pseudo husband and became my mother's caretaker and paid all of our bills at 10 years old and, and really helped my mother function and like helped her navigate life. I got my driver's license, by the way, as a hardship because my mother went to the judge at, when I was two months before I was 14 years old, the judge granted me a driver's license <laughs> so that I could leave in the morning and go pick up the nanny and bring her back to our house. <laughs> and nanny and housekeeper because my mother couldn't function. So I was 13 years old driving my mother's car around doing errands and buying groceries and making sure that we were all taken care of. So as you can tell, I really come from a, a, a significant dysfunctional trauma filled life and then childhood. And then I was a sophomore junior in college in undergraduate school. And my sister had been in and out of treatment 
and continued to relapse throughout her life until I was a junior in college. And she had gone to treatment in Arizona and got out of treatment. And she asked my grandparents to help her buy a small little loft in downtown Portland, Oregon. And so the dysfunctional people that they were said, absolutely, we'll help you. Let's, you know, we want you to be safe and we want you to do well. So let's reward you again. And so they got her this little loft on the eighth story of this building. And she was there for about two weeks and met a bunch of friends and decided to have a party one night. And she had a party. And my mother got a phone call from the Portland Police Department in the middle of the night when I was a junior undergraduate, undergrad. And somehow, we don't know to this day what happened, but she fell from the eighth story of her balcony to the street below and died. She had cocaine in her system and alcohol in her system. Again, my mother was just losing a child, right? Was absolutely devastated. And my mom went into a deep, deep depression. So she died. My, my sister Brenda died of drug addiction. My mom really went into this deep depression. And exactly one year to the day later, my middle twin uh, sister died of cancer. So that was when I was a senior in high school. Again, devastation hit my family my senior year of school. And I was a business. I was working on my business degree and I had my real estate license and I thought I was going to go be a banker and work in business. And when my second sister died, I just, I was a senior and I was like, I can't do this. I have to help people. I've got to learn how to navigate this and navigate life, both with therapy and helping other people through dysfunction. At my sister's funeral, uh, she had cancer and she had a, a, a physician that was called an onco oncological pain management physician. And his name was C. Stratton Hill III. And he had written many, many, many textbooks on, on pain and cancer pain and how to treat that. And he came to her funeral, which is very rare for a physician to do. I asked him to sit with us and he did. And after the funeral, Dr. Hill said, James, why don't you come up to my office next week? And I want to visit with you. And I was like, something wrong with me? And he said, I just want to visit with you. So a week later, I went up to his office at MD Anderson Hospital and walked in and his wife was a nurse there at his practice. And so I got taken back to Dr. Hill's office and he and his wife sat down with me and they said, how are you doing? And I said, you know, I'm doing okay. I think I'm probably going to go back to school and get my MBA. And, but I'm trying to figure out how to help people. And he said, well, that's why I wanted you to come into the office. He said, I know that you're a business major and you're graduating with your, your, and you want to do your MBA. He said, but James, I watched you throughout your sister's cancer treatment. Your oldest sister died. I watched you navigating your family's depression and anxiety. And he said, other than you being an adult child of an alcoholic, he said, I'm an Al-Anon. My wife is an alcoholic. She goes to AA. And he said, you really need to get into the field of addiction. And you really need to learn how to work with people who have mental health disorders and maybe even chronic pain like your sister did. And that meeting really literally changed my life. And I started crying and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. No one had ever just told me to, to do it. My grandfather wanted me to be a surgeon. I knew I didn't want to do that. And, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And Dr. Hill said, I'm going to take you to University of Washington, or he went to medical school. He said, they have an amazing program. And one of these days you can do your fellowship there. 
And I eventually did. So I went back and did my master's and my doctorate and then went on for my fellowship. And I've been in practice now for 31 years. I cannot believe I've been in practice for 31 years. And that was a very long answer to a very short question of how did you get into this field of addiction and treatment and mental health? But it's really, truly my life story and where I come from. And when you were talking about there is a way through, I can tell you, you know, I just did an interview with NBC News about Naomi Judd and her death. And it's now come out that she did uh, was successful at suicide. And I had met Naomi Judd many, many, many years ago in Winona. And she had talked about her depression. She was not my patient, but we had talked about it. What I can tell everyone out there listening with adolescents and whether it's your child or your spouse or your loved one, there is always a way through because there were times when I was an adolescent watching my family that I thought I'd rather be dead and that I can't live like this and I don't want to live like this. I reached out. My mother took me to therapy as a child. Thank God. And I remember my grandparents talking to me saying, it's going to be okay. We'll help you through this. Don't worry. You know, we're here for you. And then I remember my mother, when my both of my sisters died, going into a deep, deep, deep depression and wanting to be dead because she had lost two daughters and a husband and at that time her parents. And, and she made it through and my mother made it and was eventually in recovery and died in recovery, which is amazing. But there always is, no matter how dark it is, it is not too dark. You can make your way through it. And suicide is not the way to do that. It's asking and reaching out for help. Anyway, that's my answer of how I got into this. That is incredible and just deserves a pause just to let people absorb that. I mean, that is a, first of all, that is a made-for-TV movie right there. That's incredible that all that happens. So much loss, so much pain. Yeah. And, you know, sadly, it's just a story that, that many people can relate to on some level because that's happening in their family. And it's hard to navigate. And, you know, I've heard therapists say, not a therapist, but I hear therapists say, many of them get into the field for the exact reason that you said, there's deep pain and hurt in their family. I know Sasha, our executive director, says that one of her professors had told her, do your internship where your deepest wound is at. Yeah. And your deepest wounds are where you're serving, not just us here in Houston, but nationally and around the world. And it's just amazing what you guys are able to do at Jay Flowers. And it's all burst out of that hurt and that pain and all that happened in your family. Yeah. You know, I think of Becky, who died of cancer, and Brenda, who died of addiction every single day of my life. And I, there is not a day that goes by. And of course I think of my mother and father, but, but, but my sisters touched me and that their death was devastating, losing two sisters. And, and it is why I do what I do every day. And I've been doing this for 30, 30 years. I started out 30 years ago at the Betty Ford center working actually for Mrs. Ford, which was amazing which is a story we'll have to do a second podcast on because it's a great story. But, uh, and then after that, I, I, I built clinical programs for Mrs. Ford at the Betty Ford center and trained therapists and trained psychologists and physicians and psychiatrists of working with people in a multidisciplinary approach. Because I think one of the things about treatment today, whether it's adolescent treatment 
like my sister needed, or it's young adult treatment, or it's geriatric treatment. I think one of the things that we miss in treatment, and the reason I founded J Flowers Health Institute after really a 20 some odd year career of working and building treatment centers and building clinical programs around the United States, I sat down and I said, our relapse rate in this country is really greater than 70%. It's just not okay. And, you know, opiates have killed so many people, so many teenagers, so many young adults snorting uh, Oxycontin, right? And snorting so many other things and dying even from alcohol addiction. We tend to place our loved ones, whether it's our child or our uh, other family members, spouse, what have you, or friends, into a treatment center based on, uh, oh, I think that that's a wonderful treatment center and I've heard it's great. So I'm going to send my son to, to ABC Treatment Center. And they go to ABC Treatment Center and they're seen by a nurse and they say, well, and a doctor, and they say this person needs detox and then they start treatment. And then uh, before you know it, insurance is out and they're back at home, Right. And then they need to do follow-up 12-step meetings and try to go to alumni. But 70% of the time, it's what we call a treatment failure because they relapse within a year. And what I believe is, and what I learned many, many years ago, is that if we use a multidisciplinary approach, meaning a psychiatric approach, a psychological approach, a trauma approach, Uh, of course, a very thorough uh, pain assessment or any other type of assessment that's needed, but really look at life from a 360 degree circle. And we evaluate that person prior to undergoing treatment, then we can have a true and correct set of diagnoses. So what we do at J Flowers Health Institute is when someone comes in, we start with a very thorough medical evaluation because something that was drilled into my head in graduate school is when it comes to addiction and mental health, you really need to look at medical, 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 and let's rule out anything that's going on medically. Let's look at kidney. Let's look at liver. Let's look at the brain. Let's look at at every part of the body system from head to toe. Let's do lab work and blood work and make sure we don't need to do any MRIs or is there any head trauma or anything else that's going on. And so we start with that thorough medical evaluation and then move from that medical evaluation into a psychiatric evaluation. And when I'm talking about a psychiatric evaluation, again, in the United States, When someone has a mental breakdown, I'll say, a nervous breakdown, a mental breakdown, and their parents put their children or their loved ones in the car, and they take them to a psychiatric hospital, and they're evaluated, a psychiatrist makes a diagnosis typically in less than five minutes and says, let's start them on such and such medication, put them in the hospital, put them in the psychiatric hospital, and we'll start working with them. And the average length of stay in a psychiatric hospital is about maybe five days, five to seven days yeah, before insurance runs out and they're out. That is not a proper diagnosis. It's just not. And I believe that many times our children, our loved ones are misdiagnosed. So what we do after the medical evaluation is they will sit with a psychiatrist. And when I mean sit with a psychiatrist, it may be a three-hour conversation with a psychiatrist, truly understanding what the etiology 
or pinpointing the deep part of what that person is and who they are, right? From a psychiatric standpoint, hearing them, listening to them, looking at body language, watching tears, watching laughter, inappropriate inappropriate laughter sometime, incongruent laughter, picking up on nuances, and then seeing them for three to four hours and writing the most thorough psychiatric evaluation you've ever seen in your life. And then passing that on to the clinical team. So the next person would be this uh, clinical psychologist or clinical neuropsychologist that would work with the psychiatrist and do diagnostic personality testing and really looking for, you know, is it bipolar? Is it borderline? Is it trauma? Is it what is their all five axes, right? Behavior, personality, all of the things that we look at, health, all of that, and really understanding from a clinical uh, psychological standpoint, how does this person think? How quickly do they think? How slowly do they respond? Why do they respond a certain way? How was their personality developed as a child? Because our personalities are developed as children and they rarely change. And so we really want to have an idea of who they are clinically and psychologically. And if they need neuropsychology or neuropsychological testing, then a neuropsychologist will look at also that speed of thinking and look at ADHD or any other diagnosis that would be uh, ruled out or ruled in by a neuropsychologist. And then you wanted to talk about brain mapping. The next thing that we do, so they've done medical, psychiatric, psychological, and then we do something called brain mapping. I just want to jump in really quick because I think one of the things that I want our listeners to know about the J Flowers Institute is that when you're talking about all these things, that's the benefit of participating in y'all's programming because y'all have relationships with premier doctors here in Houston in the famous medical center that you are passing your patients off to and getting this full 360 evaluation. So those partnerships and who you're working with are really key to what you guys are doing. Absolutely. You know, not many people know this, especially around the world, but even in Houston, Texas, people don't realize this. The Texas Medical Center is the largest medical center in the world. We have the top brains in the world right here in Houston. And it was founded in 1962, and it was built on the science and the the idea of total cross-institutional collaboration. That means that the TMC, Texas Medical Center, will work with Baylor, Methodist, St. Luke's, MD Anderson, or whatever hospital it is, and they're able, with patient permission, of course, to share information instantaneously and look at and discuss with each other the whole 360 degrees of a person's life from that standpoint of who would be the best of the best to work with this patient and what's needed neuroscience orthopedics neurology pain management whatever it is that's needed is brought in from the medical center to our office in evaluating these patients so yeah you're right yeah you know people come from around the globe Yep, we do. We have people fly in from uh, the UAE, such as Dubai. We have many patients from London. We have, we've had a five-year-old child fly from Tokyo, uh, Japan with their parents for evaluation. 
Uh, we've had people from Zurich. We've had people literally from all over the world, from Jerusalem. We've had several families from Israel and Jerusalem fly here. So no matter what the culture, no matter what the language, we also can provide interpreters and interpretation if that's needed to help assess and figure out the correct diagnosis. Yeah. I'm sorry to have interrupted, but that's just such a key point of the services that you guys offered. So I wanted to make sure we talked about that. And so can you go ahead and explain brain mapping? Because again, an incredible thing that you guys offer. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also one of the most important key components. You know, people have heard the phrase neurofeedback for years. This is not neurofeedback in a, in a sense. It is literally mapping the brain and you put a, I'm just going to kind of describe it because I'm not the expert that does this, but I'll, you put a skull cap on and it has 292 probes all over the brain, all over the scalp, from the back of your head to the front of your head, to the frontal lobe, all the way around the side. And then for the next two and a half hours, you've got the skull cap on and you undergo a map of the brain through testing. And some of that testing is looking at, or a lot of that testing is looking at how are the neurons in certain parts of the brain responding and how quickly do they respond? How slowly do they respond? Or because of drug use, are they not responding at all, right? And there's a whole series of tests that you do using your eyes, looking at certain objects that are on the wall, looking at a series of letters and numbers on the computer screen and using your fingers and they're looking at response time. There is so many different tests over this two hours. And when you're finished, I underwent the test myself. And when I underwent it, and I will tell you, all of our patients are exhausted after two hours because it's just what it does. Let's just say, I'm going to give you an extreme. Let's just say someone has a 70 IQ, which is a low, pretty low IQ. The purpose of this test is to take you to your 70 mark and then push you beyond it and see how far you can go. Now, let's say someone has a 160 IQ, right? Which is you, um, <laughs> a genius. <laughs> so it will literally, this test will take you all the way to your capacity, no matter how intelligent you are, and then continue to push your brain beyond your IQ, your actual IQ and fatigue your brain. And it really looks at how your brain responds under stress, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're on using a substance, if you're using alcohol or Xanax or Ambien or whatever drug that you may have in your system, it has a way of detecting that through the brain testing and the brain mapping, and it will filter it out to give you an actual IQ and an actual map of your brain without the drug use. It is the most phenomenal science. Every astronaut that goes into space undergoes this testing at NASA prior to going into space. Really? Yeah. And so then once you have the results, once you're finished, about three to seven days later, depending on, on, on the neurologist time, it's read by a neurologist and you sit with your family you sit with your clinical team, you sit with a psychiatrist, myself, and we all go through the results of the brain mapping. And we look at 
Well, in a simple term, we look at the good, the bad, the ugly, right? We look at what's working and we look at what's not working. And then it recommends, the neurologist recommends a treatment plan. So when I did it, for example, I don't mind telling everybody I'm 57 years old. So my brain is not young anymore, right? And so sometimes I have, I'll forget my keys or I'll forget where I laid my phone, or I'll forget where the dog leash is when I'm getting ready to take her out for a walk. And I'm like, yeah, like, where did I, the other day I left my car keys in the car and I was looking all over the place for my car keys. And I was like, oh, maybe they're in the car. And there they were in the club and the little middle thing. And I was like, I cannot believe I left my keys in my car. So it picked up on that. It picked up that I had at that time, some little short-term memory lapses in my memory. And it also picked up that I had a little bit of ADHD, (laughs) just a little bit. I've never been diagnosed as ADHD, but I am sure this test is accurate and I can, my thought processes can go tangential and I'll go off track every once in a while, as Anthony Fry can probably tell you, (laughs) because we've known each other so long. So he developed a protocol for me that I would do for one hour a day three days a week. So I did mine on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for three months. And I did it at home on my own laptop. And there's a person that looks just like you and I here. There's a screen, except she would be way down in my bottom left corner of my screen. And then she would take me through a series of exercises that day for an hour that would work my brain and exercise my brain in different activities. And then at one month, two months, and three months, they would retest me and look at progress or lack of progress or where they needed to change it. And I am telling you the change in my thinking, the change in my mood, the change in my sleep, my short-term memory improved by 85% on this test. It was just amazing. Not to say that sometimes I don't forget things every once in a while, but if I had kept doing it and they, and I could still go back and do it, but if I had kept doing it, I really feel like it would have improved tremendously. And it's being used with children with mental health diagnoses. It's used in substance use disorder. It's used in even Parkinson's. And it's, and it is an amazing evaluation and test for ADHD and then working with children and adults who have ADHD and really calming that brain down and refocusing you to exactly what you should be thinking about and working on and being fully present. And so that's an amazing piece of what we do. I just absolutely, that that is a fascinating tool that you guys are using and the ways that you're able to use it to expand that care for your individual clients. Because I know that's another really important element Y'all have very individualized care. And, you know, there are a lot of places that tout that. But going back to something that you said earlier about um, the treatment industry, and and certainly we're not bashing the the treatment industry, just sharing my experience. The very first treatment center that we put my daughter in, I had no introduction to the world of addiction or uh, substance use. As far as I know, it was not in our family. I'd never heard of Al-Anon. I'd never heard of AA. I'd never heard of any of that when this happened. And I remember, and I've shared this story before, when, when we put my daughter in, I remember thinking, okay, well, now it's over. Like, she's going to come home fixed. Like, if I were to put my car into the mechanic's shop or the garage, 
if I got my car back and it wasn't fixed, then I'm bringing that back to the mechanic because they haven't done their job. Right. And when she came home and you mentioned a year, within a year, 70% or more relapse. I mean, she was relapsed within days. And then, you know, it became a cycle over many years of in and out of treatment centers and various programs and stuff. And, you know, for us with teens, adolescents who go back to their school have a greater than 80% relapse within three months. Yes, they do. And one of the things that your program offers, and it's even, I have it here, it's one of y'all's taglines, is that you create hope by providing that personal and clear pathway, that 360 that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I was just wondering, can you talk a little bit about, we've talked about, you know, the, the various treatment modalities and the individualized plans, but can you give us like an actual example of what that looks like maybe for a team that y'all worked with? Absolutely. I sure can. And my dog just walked up and is wants to say hello to everybody, but. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> we love her babies. I know she's just amazing. All right. You go lay down. <laughs> She just came up and started licking on me saying, I thought you were only going to be a little while. I will give you a good, a really good example of that. We've had many teens, pre-adolescents and adolescent teens that have been to wilderness programs in Utah and the Carolinas and all over. And I am not, when I'm talking about treatment centers today, and I'm talking about wilderness programs, by all means, just like you said, I am not bashing anybody. Everybody has their own unique approach. And I think that's wonderful. What I will say is, is that at at Jay Flowers, no one gets the same treatment. Not one human being gets the same treatment because none of us are the same. And once we pinpoint through that evaluation, what the actual accurate diagnosis is and what your history is. And if you have trauma, what your trauma is or whatever it is that brought you to this point of dysfunction, that's what we pinpoint and that's what we work on. And that is unique to you and nobody else, right? So it's one-on-one number one. So each uh, adolescent would go through First, that evaluation piece of pinpointing the exact correct diagnosis. And then in treatment, it is one-on-one treatment, not in a group setting. We do do a couple of groups a week, but that adolescent would meet every single day with their psychologist and working on the, again, what the diagnosis is, what the problem is, what, what the, we develop a roadmap, what we call a roadmap for health, right? And what the adolescence goals are, we bring in the family because the family is so critical and so important. And we really want everyone to be on the same page. And then through that, we continue to communicate both with the referent, with the adolescent, with the, of course, the adolescent, because we're treating the family and anyone else involved. And we tailor that program into an eight hour a day program, five days a week. And all day long for eight hours, other than lunch and breaks, they're with a psychologist for an hour. They're with a psychiatrist for an hour. If it's a female, they even see a gynecologist because it is amazing how many young female adolescents go through hormonal changes that need to be adjusted and helped by a, a gynecologist. We call her our gynotherapist. 
She is so amazing. Both of her parents were clinical psychologists. And so she has a lot of that therapeutic experience, but she's also the most amazing gynecologist. But she works with every female patient and making sure that hormones are in line, because as you know, hormones can send you off into all kinds of behavior, right? You never know why a behavior is present, but if you pinpoint why, you can fix that behavior. And so everyone gets different treatment, but they meet with psychiatry daily, psychology daily, nutrition is such an important part of what we do with our lives and our bodies and our health. I believe in a full mind, body, spirit approach, which means a biopsychosocial approach uh, to health and wellness. And so we work with nutrition that our adolescents even have a physical therapy evaluation. And then once they go through our treatment program, they exercise daily with a physical therapist, not just a trainer, but a physical therapist who actually works with them in a fitness center, who really helps them get their body and their mind and their spirit in the right place. They meet with a spiritual therapist. And when I say spiritual therapist, I don't mean religiosity. I mean, understanding that we have someone higher than us, right? There's someone greater being. And that's a huge part of what they do. But everyone gets a different treatment, but it's geared specifically towards them. And I will tell you that people often say, well, how long is, you know, when families are considering us, they'll say, how long has Jay Flowers Health been in existence? Because they want to make sure that you have a good track record. And my answer has always been, well, I personally have been in practice for 31 years, but we have, I opened the Jay Flowers Institute out of a need three and a half years ago. And in those three and a half years, we have seen many adolescents. And I will tell you that our relapse rate has been in the last three and a half years is less than 5%. Incredible. And so we just do it. I believe that there is a, a many, many, many wonderful treatment centers out there, but we just have our own unique approach. And I think it's extremely successful in working with both adolescents and adults and uh, relapse prevention. Absolutely. And I know in talking to Robin, you're wonderful, um, <laughs> beautiful uh, co-host on your yeah. podcast. I remember her telling me a story and I just thought, you know, this is so fan- This is like the beauty of y'all's program for, for those that are animal lovers. You'll appreciate this. One of your clients, as they get to pick modalities and therapeutic processes that fit them, Right. In this individualized plan that y'all offer, one of them had chosen some time at the cat cafe because cats, animals are very calming. And so it was part of their therapeutic process. And I thought that would be what I would pick. It'd be dogs, not yeah. cats. Yeah, me too. For sure, I would be picking for animals to spend time with. My dog is just therapy for me, just yeah. existing on my lap. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 This young lady, her therapist, uh, her primary therapist would go with her and, and sit with all of these cats. And it was so calming. She had a very difficult time regulating her emotions, but when she went to the cat cafe, she was just in Zen, just like, this is my happiness. And it would, she would open up and she would talk and it was done, of course, in a confidential manner where other people couldn't hear, but it was done in this way that she was able to make progress, but no one else had really able been able to make that progress. And today she's doing 
just amazing and very successful in college and doing great. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Well, one of the, you know, one of our goals at Archway is we work with other organizations and services throughout the community. And our goal is to cast a safety net that's really deep and wide and dense so that no team falls through. It's unfortunate, you know, that they do all the time. And since COVID, it's just exponentially. But, you know, one of the reasons that I love the Jayflowers Institute so much is because that's what y'all are doing. Y'all are casting these safety nets with experts throughout Houston and and maybe even beyond. I don't know about that. You can speak to that. And you're developing these plans like we do for our students. Yes, we are a high school for students that are in recovery from multitude of things. It could be substance use. It could be eating disorder. And again, I know these are things that you guys do. It could be gaming. It could be pornography. It could be, we have students that have no substance use, but are with us for generalized anxiety disorder or other mental behavioral health issues. And we see each student as an individual and we really try to make sure we individualize their education process. And we're able to do that because of the size that we keep our school at, which is 60 to 75, which is kind of our sweet spot. And so how does that apply to y'all? I know that y'all are a very individualized service and people from around the world, but how many people do y'all try to work with at a time or do y'all have a, yeah. a limit to that? Well, I am sure like you guys, you know, when you're, when you just said 60 to 75, that's a sweet spot for you guys. And I bet if you said your sweet spot, I'm making this up, but I, if you said our sweet spot is 150, you'd still have a waiting list. Right. And so, you know, what you guys, what capacity you can handle, you know, what is most effective therapeutically or educationally, and you know where you guys need to be at 60 to 75. And you don't want to today have 200 students, right? You'd love to be able to serve that, but you can't right now. And maybe one of these days, I don't know what your long-term goal is, but maybe there will be if you ever want to do that. But, But my point is, is you know where your sweet spot is. And our sweet spot is about 10. We like to have about 10 to 12 people to be able to really, truly give each person the absolute most amount of quality time that we can give them. Because another thing that we do that's unique is, is if we're working with a student, an adolescent, or even an adult for that matter, and we're at the end of a session, or I'll air quote a session, and it's a 60-minute session, if they're not done or the therapist isn't done, it keeps going. It doesn't end until it's time and until it's therapeutically time to end appropriately. And so we can do that in a sweet spot of about 10 to 12. So we're coming to the close, but I do think it's important that people know that so that they know that there's a waiting list. And so if what they're looking for is what the Jayflowers Institute is offering, then, you know, we encourage them get online, look you guys up. Could you please tell us how people can find you both on social media, internet, they could follow the work that you're doing? You bet. Absolutely. I I would love for people to go to our website, which is jflowershealth.com. And our phone number is 713-783-6655. 
And I'll also give out my own email because I answer email questions all day, every day. My email is my first name, James at jflowershealth.com. And if families or anyone out there listening today just has a general question, I am more than happy to answer it. And if you want to have a phone conversation, email me and we'll schedule it in my schedule. But go look at jflowershealth.com and it'll give you a lot of information about what we do with adolescents and other family members as well. Perfect. So we're going to drop those in the show notes as well. We'll also put your social media because I know a lot of people will tune in via Instagram and, and want to follow you that way as well. Yeah. So we'll include those things. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that we'd have to do another podcast on, yeah. on one thing. And I'm thinking there's like 10 more podcasts. Like I want to circle back and talk about your family and about being an adult child. And, <sighs> oh, there's just so much, Dr. Flowers. I'd love yeah. to talk to you about. Well, and guess what? I also, as you know, do a podcast um, called uh, Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers. I want to invite you on my podcast. So I'd love for the world to know more about Archway Academy because I just admire so much you guys, all of you and the work that you're doing. Anytime you'd like to have me back, I'm ready and willing. Oh, well, you can guarantee that I will. And I interrupted you. Can you tell us where we can find your podcast? We'll drop it in the show notes, but I'd like people to hear it as well. Yep. It is uh, Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers, and you can find it on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and probably, oh, on we have our own YouTube channel, Understanding the Human Condition. I don't know where else, but there's a lot of places, but I know it's Apple, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and YouTube. And it's great. I've listened to numerous episodes and you have some great guests, again, from around the globe. Yeah. You've got some really top-notch guests. That you have. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. This has been great. Thank you. You are a dear and you're so easy to talk to and I could stay another three hours and just visit. So let's have coffee sometime. Let's do. Thank yeah. you so much. And bye, everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to A Way Through, brought to you by Archway Academy. The views and opinions expressed by our guests on today's episode are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect those of Archway Academy. To learn more about us and the topics we discussed, visit us at archwayacademy.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Archway Academy or on Facebook at Archway Academy HTX. Any links we mentioned and links to all of our guests on today's episode are just a tap away in the show notes. We look forward to meeting you here again on A Way Through.